Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 226, recorded for the week of August 30th, 2023. Duet, co-pilot, and a code whisperer walk into a bar in San Francisco. Good evening, Matt and Ryan. How's it going? Hello. It's going well. How are you guys? Uh, You know, I'm... A little tired. It is Friday, so because uh, we are recording after we got back from Google Next, where we've been uh, enjoying the week, talking to Google and drinking all of the AI Kool Aid you could possibly drink. Don't worry, there's more to come. Google mm. Microsoft's conference is next. <laughs> <laughs> well, reInvent's coming up soon too. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. AI for a while, I fear. Yeah, it'll be uh, at least until it hits the trough of disillusionment, and then it'll be uh, after that. It's like Bitcoin and, uh, you know, all that stuff from years ago. It's somewhere still out there. Mm-hmm. And blockchain. Yeah. I saw a Web3 service announcement, like buried deep somewhere. I laughed. We're <laughs> still relevant. Good old Web3. Pump and dump schemes all day, every day. Uh, well, we should probably get into it because we do have quite a few things to talk about from Google Next uh, in general. So, but let's uh, let's start with some general news first. Uh, I think we mentioned Code Llama. In passing, maybe a week or two ago, uh, so Facebook or Meta, as they like to be known, uh, is releasing Code Llama, which is apparently a, a code partner, you know, similar to Copilot, Duet AI, and uh, Code Whisper. And so now you can Code Llama, which better the battery stickers, Meta um, <laughs> stickers for this one. Uh, but apparently, this is a source code for the Llama two based code specialized large language model in three sizes: seven billion, thirteen billion, or thirty five billion parameters. Each model is trained with 500 billion tokens of code and code-related data, and the 7 billion and 13 billion base and instructor models have also been trained with fill-in-the-middle capability, allowing them to insert code into your existing code. Uh, And the whole idea of this is that you can take this code model and build it yourself uh, using your own code added to the model as well to potentially, I think, give you the ability to run a model that's kind of customized to your business, but you're not giving all of your private uh, code data to... OpenAI or to Bard or one of the other services that's out there on the internet. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting. Uh, it was interesting as well that they did announce you can use the new Llama 2 code Llama uh, with Google services uh, with Vertex AI. <laughs> so that was renounced at uh, Google Next this week as well, uh, as well as uh, Dade 1 support for Llama 2 in a bunch of the Vertex AI uh, models. So uh, lots of traction for you know, all these code whisper type products and uh, one more that now is a little bit more customizable to you. Yeah. I mean, you can't argue with the, the the giving it away for free and making it open. And um, you know, when I think about all the the investment and time and compute cycles that went into that, it's a pretty big gift to the community that Meta's doing. So I, you can't see anything wrong with this. I you know, like I'm burnt out on AI because I have to hear it every five minutes this week. But uh, uh, it's pretty cool. Like I'll probably see if I can play around with it my copious amounts of free time that I have somehow. Apparently I can run on one GPU. So I was trying to figure out if it could run on a, a Mac M1 or M2 GPU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could run it locally on my Mac. Kind of neat. That would be neat. <laughs> so I got I have a project to go look and see if someone's trying to do this, this craziness as well. Because um, I don't want to do it myself because I don't know enough about AI. But uh, <laughs> if someone's got some, some <laughs> tutorial work, I would be interested in trying to figure this out. So... Because I mean, it'd be nice to write code like on a deserted island with no internet. So then the AI is with me. I can write my code. <laughs> <laughs> the AI is following you to your desert island. <laughs> exactly. Sounds very peaceful, doesn't it? it? Uh, yeah. Especially after this, it's, we get Google Next. Yeah. Anything, yeah. anything would be great. Me time. I mean, it's interesting if you go like deep into the article. There, they start to digress into like. Hey, the seven and the thirteen billion are better for like near real time, you know, response back, and the thirty four billion, if I'm remembering, slash skimming the article quick enough to actually find the right number. Yeah, thirty four billion um, is better for like fine tuning for yourself. So they really go into a little bit more detail of how to do it, and you know, I think they also put out some code snippets if you kind of dive into it a little bit more, um, which I thought was very nice. And like Ryan said, it's a great gift to open up you know, a lot of these things to smaller businesses and not just be like, here, Microsoft or here, Google have all my source code to everything in the world. Yeah. Now, it's, it's not really a gift, though. Um, well, I mean, it's a gift to Amazon, Azure, and, and GCP yeah. because uh, if you want to rerun this model using the open source code, 
Uh, it only costs you a bajillion dollars. So, yeah. You know. yeah. It's, it's a gift to the cloud providers from Meta to you. But if you could run it on your laptop. That, that was a show title we should have had. <laughs> <laughs> we, we struggled on the show titles. Yeah. But if you could run it on your laptop, like you said, you know, if you could actually let every developer run this on their laptop and just by breaking every computer in your organization, you know, you could actually produce, you know, something that's a lot more fine tuned for you, which could be interesting. Well, a few weeks here on the show, uh, short weeks ago, we talked about HashiCorp uh, adopting the BSL license. Uh, and then we talked about the OpenTF group writing a manifesto pleading HashiCorp to reopen it. And uh, guess what? HashiCorp didn't listen to it. And so they have officially forked uh, Terraform, the last non-BSL version of the Terraform code. Uh, and they are rapidly working on getting a repo up and running for you so you can be able to start contributing to their open source contribution. I'm hoping to have that in the next week or two with the goal of having an official OpenTF.1.6 release uh, sometime in the next few months. They are being somewhat public about how they're doing this. They have a roadmap. They have issues and commits uh, in the main support us uh, type repo. Uh, and they'll be posting links to the official repos once those are up and running very shortly. Are you guys surprised about this? I'm not surprised. Uh, no. I'm not surprised. That there's drama in the tech community over changing of licensing? I've never heard that before. <laughs> uh, well, if you really want an opinion that says they hate this, uh, I have a 75 tweet thread uh, written by Vlad Ionescu about why he thinks uh, the OpenTF is the biggest waste of time in the history of the world, which is sort of funny to me. Uh, and you know, he goes on to talk about you know that the way you build an open source community is you go get adopters, and you know these four or five uh, paid for startup companies, you know, are barely putting a million dollars into this effort, and that the only way true open source happens is if you have a bunch of commercial things. And then he he discredits two of their examples of why they said uh, HashiCorp doesn't care about the community. One was around state file encryption, and the other was around uh, custom implementers. I think. Uh, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, uh, and then basically, no APIs. Yeah, that was a custom API. Yeah, uh, and then uh, you know basically kind of went on a whole thing about it and uh, basically said you know come back to me in three months and if they're if I'm wrong then I'll admit that I'm wrong so I'll be making a note of that to follow up in three months. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's going to be hard to to get community support to drive a fork for something as large as Terraform. I, I, I agree there um, that it's it's going to be a challenge. I don't know if I agree with anything else. I, I was trying to, trying to read the thread and trying to like sort of not have a visceral reaction to the tone. And, and it's just, it's while complaining about drama in the most dramatic way possible, it sort of, it defeated the purpose for me. And I was like, I was looking for a little bit more insight because I haven't died go very deep and I haven't really formed an opinion on if this is a good idea or not. I don't know. I think jury's still out and continue to, to watch and see if if it takes yeah. off and becomes a thing. I mean, I, I so I tweeted back at him and I was like, well, how do you see the pair? Like, this is very similar to what happened with open search. You know, same idea other mm-hmm. than Amazon was backing open search. Mm-hmm. It's probably the only big difference is that there's a big there was a bigger player who was backing it than these five four or five startups that are backing this. Um, like what's what do you really see as the big difference here? Like fundamentally it's the same challenge Amazon had, other than Amazon has more influence probably with other companies. Um, but you know, if there's people who are really solid, sold on N0 or stack sets or those different products that leverage Terraform, you know. Yeah, maybe they're willing to pen, spend a million dollars a year on open source to is I think there's more value than that. And his one of his arguments he had too was, you know, why don't you just go sign a licensing agreement with HashiCorp for a million dollars? I don't know that HashiCorp's willing to do that. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any any indication that HashiCorp's willing to sell you know, sell a license to basically embed Terraform into a competitive product to Terraform Enterprise. So I mean it's a great on theory that yeah, if I was to spend a million dollars on five engineers, why wouldn't I just go spend that money on the license? But I don't, I don't know if that's an option. So it's sort mm-hmm. of a kind of a false pretense. Yeah. I mean, they'd have to be thinking that they weren't giving up a million dollars in revenue in that, in that, right? Which is, I'm like, eh, I'm not sure. I mean, while Terraform itself is valuable, it's, to me, it's a lot of the providers and all those things. And if they can keep, you know, having the ability to connect to AWS, GCP, you know, everywhere that you need to connect to. You know, I've done things in Terraform where like, 
it completely bootstraps the entire environment, you know, including the SQL database all via the provider. So it creates the RDS, launches then and connects via SQL into it, does whatever it needs to do. And like, it's great. It works, you know, and that to me is a lot of the value of it. The, the Terraform of just orchestrating, connecting to the providers, running it while, well, yes, is, you know, the core of it. I, I mean, maybe it's because I don't do it every day right now, but like I still use a lot of like dot eleven or dot, you know sorry dot twelve dot thirteen features and not a lot of the one dot dynamics and a lot of that type of stuff. So like once a lot of that's there, how much iteration and you know maybe you guys or anybody else knows, but like I feel like there hasn't been a dramatic change in Terraform in a while. So like if they fork it now, they get a lot of these base features of that built the community and built everything around it what are what else is are they going to build into terraform at this point that's going to be completely revolutionary that isn't going to just be incremental updates versus if open tf takes what they have it's all there already and the value to me is in a lot of the providers having the apis to everything new providers so are they going to have to support both both platforms like that's the real i think the trick is you know i think you're right a lot of value is that that integration point uh that's where that's such a dangerous thing in the community is everyone's now have to support too probably i i'm sure you guys remember when Elasticsearch moved over they like made it so that you can't connect with a non-elasticsearch mm-hmm. uh connector to it mm-hmm. and like i'm just kind of envisioning that happening where like AWS, you know, Terraform AWS updates their provider to not only allow, you know, this and it becomes a chicken and egg. Okay, you did this, we do this. I feel like Palm OS did it with like iTunes back in the day, where like it was like a little bit of a chicken egg. Like we connect to iTunes and then Apple blocked it. Like I just don't see where this is going to go for them. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. That's the that's the big mystery of this whole thing. You know, <laughs> we talked about it a couple of times. You know, you're we out. I think those two episodes, but uh, yeah. You know. We're not sure exactly where it goes, but you know, I also, you know, the one that someone pointed out was, you know, Mongo did this before, right? Mongo changed their licensing. I'm sure somebody tried to create an open Mongo. I don't know. I didn't look. Um, but you know, fundamentally, after people got through the gnashing of teeth and the politics of it, you know, that ultimately Mongo has been successful and probably more successful as a company since they went, you know, to a BSL type license. Um, you know, and I, for Terraform itself, I think. I don't think it's a bad call. I I sort of dislike the fact that they're kind of locking out other people who are making better products than Terraform Enterprise. Because uh, I think the N0 and, and stack sets and, and these other products are better products than, than Terraform Cloud. And that's the part that I, I want OpenTF to be successful for those because I do like to have the alternative to it. Um, and I do think those products are better in some ways. Um, but I do want to see the community spark and, and have people who are interested in supporting it a cloud provider would definitely make me feel better about it. <laughs> it's like the open search product. But uh, we'll see. It'll, it'll, we'll, only time will tell what happens here. Moving on to AWS. Uh, they're introducing a new Glacier feature that allows you to lock your vault with a variety of compliance controls that are designed to support their, um, the important record retention use case. Once locked, the policy cannot be overwritten or deleted, and Glacier will enforce the policy and will protect your records according to the controls. And the fact that it took 10 years for them to come up with a way for you never to delete data you have to pay for uh, if you configure this incorrectly, it sort of makes me laugh. But uh, now you can uh, have a really bad mistake by an intern that costs you a lot of money for a very long time if you're not careful. So uh, be careful with this one. Uh, creating the wrong policy could cause your data not to be deletable for quite a while. Couldn't you do that with the legal hold feature also in S3? So I just assumed that it already existed. So in my head, this was like, oh, wait, this wasn't already there in S3? Because you know, it was a feature of S3, so I just didn't even realize. Well, the legal hold, I think, is just on S3, so this is on Glacier. Yeah, I just didn't realize, you know, in my head, they kind of merge as product lines, so when I read this announcement, I was like, oh, wait, I thought they already did this. Yeah, it, I mean, sort of. <laughs> they definitely sort of did it before, but now they do it everywhere. Yeah, Glacier, yeah. Glacier is attached, and you can't use it technically without S3, but yet they're still separate products. You always have to kind of remember that. It's a little, it's a little strange. I mean, in the days of ransomware, you know, there's an, you know, a cheap way to get, you know, protection there for that. I'm like, ah, good. Yeah. That's a great solution for ransomware. So. Yeah. So if I, so if I put a 10 year retention lock and I go bankrupt and I stopped paying for my AWS bill, 
is the file still going to be there in 10 years? I mean, or do for, those of, who, for those who have had the experience <laughs> of actually running a, an account and then deleting that account and not having turned things off before you deleted it and then realized you can still connect to those <laughs> resources, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you won't be able to get to it, but that data will be there. <laughs> uh, well, did you guys know that Amazon has a, a managed Flink service? Did not. It, it didn't either, but uh, they do. And it's called Amazon Kinesis Data and Analytics, or at least it was, but now they're renaming it to Amazon Managed Services for Apache Flink, uh, which is sort of funny because Ben Kehoe actually tweeted about this when they announced it, that uh, he's had this conversation many, many times where he said, yeah, you know, you can just use the Managed Flink service for AWS. And someone would say, oh, wait, they have a Managed Flink offering? And uh, that's the problem with these kind of cute names like Kinesis Data Analytics or Kinesis Data Firehose. Uh, which I believe is uh, some form of Presto. Uh, you know, these these things are just other projects and other things that are very popular in the community that have you know different naming that fits into the Amazon ecosystem, but you know fail to be discoverable by uh, normal humans. Well, especially since Kinesis isn't really uh, a Kafka-based product, does a very similar thing, but isn't the code base. And so to have Flink and Presto be named Kinesis Data Analytics and Kinesis Firehose, I think. No, anyway, uh, like it's it's pretty interesting because I, I I did not know this was Apache Flink, but I also don't know what Apache Flink does. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it, double-edged sword. It's one of the one of the many ways you can import and extract, transform, or load your data into a data warehouse of some kind. Oh, That's, good! I needed another way. Yeah, another way. <laughs> you didn't have enough. You now, now have, you one, have more, one. one more way to go. Uh, Amazon has released the dumbest compute optimizer yet, as far as I can tell. Uh, and I am judging it purely by reading just this press release they announced. Uh, the AWS Compute Officer now supports licensing cost optimization for SQL Server, making recommendations like downgrading your SQL Server edition to standard edition or BYO licensing, which seems like really dumb choices. Because if the reason why companies typically use enterprise is because they have features that they need in enterprise. Uh, and so just moving to standard edition might be something the FinOps person would recommend to you, but you as a true DBA or DBA engineer would know that that's a bad idea because now you can't do things like online re-indexing of your, uh, your indexes uh, or you know, rebuilding your full table scans, etc. So it would be not really recommended to do that. And then the idea of like, oh, just you know, move to BYOL licensing, that's a good way to get in trouble with Microsoft. Because now you just change your servers to BYOL licensing and you don't have a licensing and you get audited, that's a bad day for your I was hoping this goes a little deep into like CPU and core recommendations and, you know, cause that's also a big factor of SQL server licensing. And, but I, you know, I don't know. Can you really optimize Microsoft SQL server? Like truly? All I know is you both know way more about Microsoft SQL licensing than I know. And I'm very happy about that. But you work on yeah. Azure. You should know way yeah. more about SQL Server licensing by now. No, because you know what, what that company does for you. It's amazing. Right. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. have to deal with it. I say, give me a server, give me a database, encrypted transit, and I'm done. I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, not only do I have to manage licenses, but he gets a better product. That's true. That's very true. That's questionable. Better product is questionable. Yes. Versus what? It's Microsoft <laughs> SQL Server. You know, it there, there's features in the Azure workload that's different. Yeah. But no, you like rattled off features. I was like, I don't know what's in standard versus enterprise. And I'm happy to be ignorant yeah. in this case. Single table, no SQL. Thank you very much. Take your store procedures and your relational structures. Ah. All right. Well, it's time to talk about the big topic in the room. That's Google Cloud Next. Woohoo! There was a theme. <laughs> Can you guess what it is? <laughs> It was AI, AI everywhere, AI and everything you do, AI in even places you didn't think you wanted AI, or AI that you didn't know existed in that spot. So, lots of AI, uh, and uh, you know the keynotes were interesting. Uh, TK and Sundar did the primary keynote. They did have a couple of guest speakers. One very overly caffeinated uh, big data <laughs> AI person who was very excited to be there, um, and uh, was very vocal, very animated, which was sort of fun. Uh, you know, but overall, the uh, production quality, you know, for a Google keynote, uh, still high, top notch. Uh, TK though felt a little stiff, maybe a little nervous. Like maybe he's been locked in a box somewhere for two and a half years of pandemic. Uh, since the last time he talked in 2019 on stage, uh, he, he seemed a little awkward, a little stiff at times. Uh, and I did hear from somebody who was up close and personal to the teleprompter that 
there are several areas where you know the text was in a certain color that indicated he was supposed to smile while saying it, which you know everyone loves a good forced smile. That's not creepy <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, the uh, overall event sessions and, and venues, uh, San Francisco Moscone Center, and all of its uh, issues and challenges were in place, uh, including overly expensive hotel rooms. Uh, terrible food venues and a underground bunker of a convention center. Uh, all the great pitfalls of the Moscone Center, unfortunately. Uh, although it is here locally to me, I did decide to stay at the venue instead of trying to drive to and from my house because that would be ridiculously crazy in the terrible San Francisco traffic. Uh, but good news for me, it's going to be in Vegas next year. So I don't have to go back to San Francisco Moscone for this. Yeah, I felt, did they I felt out- like a traitor. They've outgrown Moscone. <laughs> getting a hotel room I'm like this is cheating but i wasn't i wasn't willing to brave you know an hour and a half to two hour commute every day and then a long conference yeah and then a long conference day so overall uh what was your impressions of the event ryan since you were there with me uh so i don't mind moscone nearly as much as you do as far as the venue i i do agree the the food where they placed near way gardens and having it be outside in the in the blazing sun was a little rough but i thought the you know the they laid out the space really well. I thought that the, the, you know, the, the couple sessions that I was able to attend, you know, were very full and crowded, but it wasn't so bad. Um, you know, it's just a lot of people trying to go to the same thing. I mean, it felt like a pretty dead conference compared to reInvent. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you definitely, I didn't feel like I was wall to wall, people to people, which uh, was a nice change of pace. Yeah. Uh, for I a mean, and conference. that's, you know, like I, I think that, you know, artificially, keeping the number of attendees down is probably a good idea just because it is really painful to attend some of these when they're at full, full tilt. And so like, I don't know, you know, if, if the, how, what COVID has done to the numbers, but I really enjoy (laughs) the last couple that I've gone to where there's not a lot of people, like it's not empty, but it's also just not like you're not breathing on everyone. Yeah. Uh, Matt, did you have a chance to check out any of the sessions or any of the content or the Twitter sphere topics and conversations about the event? Can't say I did. I had a very busy week. It was on my list before we did the podcast tonight and just didn't make it to it. Well, good. This is all be so, new to you. So we'll give you mm-hmm. all kinds of gifts. Real time reaction. Yeah, real time. <laughs> uh, so uh, nice and early uh, on Tuesday morning, uh, they sent an email with all the announcements they were going to make <laughs> at the entire conference which was very handy for uh, doing podcast show notes. Uh, there's only one article to summarize, <laughs> which was very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a very deep, long list of things. Uh, and so first up, uh, they do have a bunch of new titanium-backed hardware, which allows them to do faster processing, machine learning, and AI capabilities. They didn't talk about this too much, although TK talked about it for a couple minutes on main stage. Uh, this is really their competitor to Nitro, uh, which you, you know, didn't use the word Nitro, but for those of you who have been kind of sticking around in the cloud world, uh, all the Nitro type things are in the titanium backed hardware. Faster access to disk, faster access to networking without the overhead on the CPUs. Um, so, you know, nice to see them also doing some custom silicone work, uh, which I appreciate. But uh, getting to things that you actually do care about. Uh, first up, uh, Jonathan gets a point with the new Cloud TPU V5e, the most cost efficient, versatile, and scalable purpose built AI accelerator to date. Now, customers can use single Cloud TPU platform to run both large scale AI training and inference. Uh, which apparently in the T4 uh, TPU V4 you would uh, do with different workloads or something. I fully understand that, but apparently you could do now both of those together. And if you didn't like burning money enough of that, you could also have the new A3 VMs with NVIDIA H100 GPUs to receive better training performance over the prior Gen 2 GPUs. So uh, the fire burning options were up front and center of the conference, which is always great. You know, like like many of the giveaways at the conference floor, if Jonathan's not here to claim his prize, does he actually get it? Oh, oh, that's a good call. Ooh, He's yeah. not here, I, and mm. I, you know, I would then take the win. So I would, <laughs> I would not be opposed to this. <laughs> we go with half a point. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Justin's too good at this. <laughs> I, I just, like I, we just got, I just got we, lucky. We got to give him a handicap. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I also learned uh, some interesting things about Anthos. In my mind, Anthos has always been this thing you use for multi-cloud GKE, uh, and I was uh, proudly uh, corrected by a product manager on the uh, Anthos uh, GKE team. He said, no, no, no. Our biggest population of Anthos users is actually on GCP. It can do those multi-cloud things too, or on-prem, but really it's, it's designed to simplify your life and provide a bunch of additional features on top of GKE. 
Uh, and in recognition of that, they did rebrand it basically to GKE Enterprise, which enables multi-cluster horizontal scaling, plus GKE features like auto-scaling, workload orchestration, automatic upgrades, and they now support those new fancy cloud TPU V5Es for all of you trying to do your training models inside of a container. Several features in GKE Enterprise that we should talk about, the new multi-cluster feature or fleets. So this allows you to set up multiple fleets of uh, Kubernetes nodes that you can then allocate to different user groups uh, or security domains. And then inside of those security domains, they can manage their own namespaces without having to worry about namespace collisions and all the other nasty nastiness that Ryan hates about Kubernetes. So he's mm-hmm. kind of fat. Uh, some new managed security features, a fully integrated and fully managed platform, and hybrid and multi-cloud support. Uh, their enterprise edition includes the ability to group similar workloads into dedicated clusters, apply custom configurations and policy guardrails, isolate your sensitive workloads, delegate your cluster management to somebody else, spend less time managing the platform, and run a container workload anywhere you want to run it. Yeah, I was in the same product conversation, so me and Justin were both wide-eyed, like going, oh, right, that's not what I thought that was as they're going over features. And this really does a really good job tying a bow around almost every gripe I've had around, you know, companies moving to Kubernetes without really funding it as a platform team, you know, giving it to a group of developers or old sysadmins. I mean, like, here you go. Um, Cause it's a complicated, complicated tool that a lot of people, you know, set it up with the defaults and then you have just full access to everything with all kinds of security issues and instability issues just some scary stuff but these features really address all of that right it's it turns kubernetes into a platform offering and that still needed centralized team who's going to own it and love it and take care of it but um being able to sort of empower their downstream users to you know update when they want and and upgrade and, and take a little bit of control is super powerful and i love it yeah, I always describe Kubernetes as it's as complicated as a cloud. Like there are so many aspects of it. There's so many things that you have to do with it to maintain secure, you know, everything that you just talked about, Ryan, that it's no different to me than AWS, GCP, Azure. If you really want to go with Oracle, you're more than welcome to. But you know, it's just it's as complicated as it, and you have to do all the fine-tuning with it. So having some of these things a little bit more out of the box is definitely nice. Um, and it's why whenever I hear, hey, this 50-person company is running Kubernetes, I'm like, oh, God, why? Do you actually have people that know what you're doing? Um, one of the features that stuck out to me on this, though, was really the multi-cluster feature. Um, I've seen a couple of companies want to do like where they have where it's like a multi-office structure where they run little clusters at every office. And being able to centrally manage it is definitely something that I know has kind of been growing inside the Kubernetes world, but, you know, is nice to see a little bit more maintained in this product too. And, you know, it is still the Anthos we've grown to love, right? So it's still a huge multi-cloud or hybrid cloud opportunity for a ton of people and companies, right? So that they can have sort of a, a consistent experience to offer across, you know, their data centers and any kind of any one of the cloud hypervisors. So pretty cool there too. Yeah, and it, it fixed a lot of the pricing problems too that it originally had. Remember, I think we used to talk about the ten thousand dollar a month minimum <laughs> with the twelve month contract commitment. Uh, so you're you're in one hundred twenty thousand dollars just to get started with it, and now they've moved all of that into like per per CPU uh, licensing models. That you know it's a tax, of course. You're going to pay more for it, but it, it's mm-hmm. more aligned to your workloads and what you're actually doing versus something that didn't really have a lot of connectivity to anything that mattered. I'd be curious to see, and I don't know that you ever would, but like Google put out, hey, this many number, you know, this percentage of customers actually using it for multi-cloud versus multi-cluster versus, you know, how are people actually leveraging the enterprise product? Like, just because I feel like multi-cloud story, as we've talked about, is, you know, always a great thing to say you do, but very few people do it and do it well. And obviously, Anthos slash GKE Enterprise helps with a lot of that, but I'd be curious to see how many people are actually leveraging it for that. So they, they talked about, I mean, again, I product manager conversation, I'd be kind of sensitive here because I don't want to say something I'm not allowed to say. But, uh, you know, they alluded to customers, you know, in multi-cloud scenarios doing exactly this. You know, they're 
their primary use mm-hmm. case is GCP, but then you know they get into a situation where they need to go into a country or to a data center where they don't have a GCP region. And this is a really easy solution for them to extend basically their Google Cloud into a different region, either on a different cloud provider or in a colo they've set up. Um, they said that is a very common pattern that they use and see. Hmm. And you can adopt a cluster that's already running a workload into GKE Enterprise, which is something that I thought was super, super cool too. So it's like, even if you're not running there, you don't have to like break it all down and start again. You can just sort of adopt and get a lot of these features natively. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentsnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Well, uh, if you have ever had multiple clouds uh, or even a you know, data center, connecting to the clouds together is sort of kind of an interesting journey of third-party vendors and telcos uh, that make it kind of painful and a process and there's lots of fees and lots of things you got to watch out for when you're doing inter-cloud connectivity. Um, but now with the new cloud, cross-cloud networking capability, the global networking platform helps customers connect and secure applications across the cloud. It is open, workload-optimized, and offers ML-powered security to deliver zero-trust uh, capabilities and reduces your, cloud, uh, your cross-cloud network latency by 35%. Uh, they say there's three key tenants to it, being open, secure, and optimized. It allows you to address those distributed apps, secure access for hybrid workloads, or deliver internet-facing apps altogether. It supports Alibaba Cloud, AWS, Azure, and OCI. And I found a quote uh, that resonates probably with Ryan. Aaron Lake, Senior Vice President and CIO, and CIO at Yahoo. Yahoo Mail is moving its back end to Google Cloud and leveraging the PlanetScale network for high-performance and secure access to Google's data services. Cross-cloud network interconnects for high-scaled and high-performing secure access to Spanner, and BigQuery will help Yahoo deliver performance and security across hundreds of millions of mailboxes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's super cool. When I worked for Yahoo, they were very heavy a data center company. And that was my primary role was was automating a lot of that inner, inner company sort of play for launching infrastructure. So building our own versions of AWS and, and Azure services at the time. And so to see them, you know, taking advantage of the public ones is great, right? Because they're, they're at a scale that is going to make the product really good for everyone else and that's you know there's a lot of challenges um yahoo mail has been around a long time and and it's very popular globally so it's you know that's some serious workloads that's cool i mean i judge you every time you send me mail from your yahoo accounts i know you do but i bleed purple man it it (laughs) sticks with you I asked you if it was a real email that you gave me the first time or you're giving me a fake email address I mean, i have all the other ones too because you know the first thing i did was go out and get everyone but I gotta lock in your uh, lock in your email address. But then people started making fun of me in Yahoo, and I'm a contrarian. So yeah, yeah. no, I know. This is the thing. If you if you want Ryan to stop doing something, you can't mention it at all. You have to ignore it. Uh, well, that wasn't the only network fund that they gave us. They gave us global access and global backends, which allow you allow private clients from any region to access internal load balancers in any Google Cloud region. Uh, for global access. And the global backends allows internal ALB to health check and send traffic to globally distributed backend services. Uh, so you can think about really making your troubleshooting complicated across your network with this. But uh, mm. nice to have the flexibility and supportability of that. Uh, to simplify the networking layer, VPC spoke support in Network Connectivity Center now lets you smoothly scale VPC connectivity, providing reachability between large number of VPC spokes. Uh, and peered VPC spokes with overlapping RFC 1918 addresses will be able to utilize Cloud NAT's inter-VPC NAT feature finally ensuring that inter-VPC network traffic stays within the Google Cloud network versus traversing the internet to help ensure privacy and security. Uh, and they now support uh, mutual TLS, if you want that in your load balancer, as well as supports cross-project service referencing in that as well. And then they also announced the Cloud Next Gen Firewall and Preview, 
the cloud's first next-gen firewall powered by Palo Alto Networks, which provides you inline threat protection with 20x higher efficiency compared to other cloud firewalls, a built-in distributed firewall architecture, unified network security posture controls, and simplified single policy threat response. Uh, which that I, that this all all this network stuff was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are some long-awaited features. Like you're making fun of the the global access and global backends, but you know, as someone who does build a lot of internal services, this is great because I no longer have to advertise my service publicly to get stuff like HA, you know, in multi-regions, and so I can I can have a single application and multiple pools running different regions, but it's a single endpoint, and GCP will route that traffic as I set via policy. I don't have to worry about failing over, failing, you know, that kind of thing. It will keep keep on track of the health checks and use latency or whatever I have to find as a policy and route it wherever I need it, which I really like. It's it's a it's a you know, when it works, it's it's much simpler than, you know, tr- trying to do something with latency based like public IPs and and if you've ever like had to go change the mailing address in RN for your subnet because it's routing traffic to the wrong region in the US, you know, like it's there's it's a little complicated. So this is nice. I like it. Yeah, the intro VPC NAT feature, you know, just staying in the Google Cloud is great because I know I've never really dealt that much with Google Cloud, but you know, in AWS and Azure, you know, living inside there is great and not having to knowing that, hey, the peering connection stays more local. You know, and is makes life a lot better and makes security people a lot happier. So it's a great feature to add there. Yeah, I mean, GCP, you've been able to define a global VPC across multiple regions, but then the first thing you realize is that yeah, you've got this subnet in this region, this subnet in this region. You can manage that pretty easily. But then you hit all the service limits as you peer to all the various internal services with GCP and your other services and everything, and it's all a centralized object. And so now with, you know, being able to support multiple VPCs and, and crosstalk between them, you can sort of grant more granular IM access to people who can make changes to just the VPC they own. And then you can, you know, seamlessly route traffic to the other reasons. And then it all supports, you know, the, the private service connect backend as well. So it's even, you've kind of got your cake and eating it too, in the sense of your routing layer or your subscription model for, for managing traffic. Yeah, I I do I do uh, made fun of it, but I, I do appreciate it. <laughs> it's just I don't know the troubleshooting is always the complicated part of these things, yeah. and remembering these weird idiosyncrasies sometimes will bite you. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're we're entering into the AI portion of the keynote. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. dun dun dun. Uh, but first up, Google Distributed Cloud, uh, which is the ability to run Google Cloud services in your data center or on your own hardware. Uh, is expanding to now support Vertex AI integrations, as well as a new managed offering of AlloyDB Omni on your GCD-hosted uh, infrastructure. So if you had a need to run uh, Postgres AlloyDB, you can now do that in your data center on Google Managed Hardware and services just like Outposts or things like Amazon for their RDS-type databases. All right, I'm going to now say a lot of words that may make <laughs> you think I'm having a stroke. But I'm not, <laughs> I promise. Uh, there's just a lot of weird names in this space. So... Vertex AI has gotten a ton of new things. Uh, I already mentioned to you guys earlier the Llama 2 support, uh, but they also got Palm 2 support, Image, uh, or sorry, it's Imageify, uh, Kodi upgrades, new tools to tune the Palm 2 and the Kodi uh, libraries and language models. Uh, technology innovation suits Falcon LLM, which is a popular open source model, as well as a pre-announced Claude 2 from Anthropic, or Anthropic, sorry. Uh, Vertex AI extensions will now allow developers to access, build, and manage extensions that deliver real-time information, incorporate company data, and take actions on the user's behalf. This is an example of using Vertex to basically connect directly to a CRM system like Salesforce uh, to hydrate data, etc. A new enterprise grounding service, which I don't know what that is, but I love the name of it. Grounding sounds awesome. And then a new digital watermaking, watermarking feature, which allows you to watermark images generated by Vertex AI image technologies. Uh, allowing you to get a better idea of where the data came from and how it generated that particular image, which is important if they were able to copyright AI images, you'll need to be able to do this. Uh, they're offering state-of-the-art technology that embeds that watermark directly into the image of the pixels, making it invisible to everybody else, but only visible to the computer. And then Collab Enterprise, which is an easy way for you to uh, collaborate on Juniper Notebooks with enterprise-level security and compliance, Oh, which is great. And that was just the first part of AI. So any questions there before I move on to the next set of AI things? 
No, other than I hope Enterprise Grounding Service is somehow routing electricity, even though I know it's not. I, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Then we get into the workspaces part of the world where they announced all the Duet AI capabilities for all the things, even things I didn't know about. Uh, but I did get a point because they did GA, Google Meets, and Google Chat AI Assistant, as well as Workspaces AI has now launched as well. So you have that in Duet AI family. Uh, Duet AI for BigQuery provides you a contextualized assistance for writing SQL queries. So for those of you who struggled staring at that SQL prompt in BigQuery going, I don't understand, you can now just tell the computer what you want to query and it'll do it for you. For those of you struggling with your GKE and Cloud Run capabilities and learning how to run an application in a container, Duet AI for GKE and Cloud Run will now help you with assistance to cut down on the time it takes to run a containerized app. For those of you who are trying to tune and optimize those queries, Duet AI and Spanner, AlloyDB, and Cloud SQL helps you generate code to structure, modify, or query data using natural languages. As well as they're bringing Duet AI database migration service to help you automate the conversion of database codes such as stored procedures, functions, triggers, and packages. And then for your security SOC team, who's desperately overworked, Duet AI is coming to them in the Chronicle Security Operations Center, Mandy and Threat Intelligence Solution, and the Security Command Center, all available to help you identify and address security issues quicker using the power of AI. I've made a lot of fun of AI, but the minute I could, you know, like I swear when I'm writing SQL queries, and then now I just swear in natural language, and it comes out with a SQL query, <laughs> and I, I love it. I honestly, like, I just, I know what I want, but I do not know the SQL syntax to get what I want. And this is, it is a fantastic feature that I've, I've played around with a little bit for a couple hours. And I, like, I will never, ever write SQL any other way. I really want to connect it to my company's SQL so I don't ever have to deal with writing SQL because my running joke in the company is, if you ever make me touch a SQL database, I'm going to yell. And it can end poorly for everyone involved because I should not ever touch SQL. So if I could just say, like Ryan said, do this for me, it'd be great. Well, it's funny you say never touch a database, but, but now like everything, you know, the success of a true, you know, data product is that it understands SQL syntax. And so like every big data yeah. feature, you know, BigQuery, like all of these these things, it's all just SQL queries. And so like I'm, I'm being forced. Oh, I know. I know. Me too. I just hate SQL. I mean. I hate SQL Server. I don't hate all the other types of SQL. Like Postgres is fine. MySQL is fine. Just Windows SQL, I don't like. You enjoy writing SQL code? I don't enjoy it, but I don't I, hate it like you guys do. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like now, but I, I am I'm also excited for AI. I'm like, well, you know, my, 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 <laughs> to be fair, my extent of SQL querying is like select statements and simple updates and upserts. I don't do anything really complicated where I get into like super complicated joins and, and those type of things when I typically am doing what I'm doing in SQL. So from that perspective, yeah, I hated doing those things, <laughs> but I don't do those very often. And the things I do do, um, it'd be great. And I, I'm actually right now trying to back up an RDS MySQL database. And if I could use this to figure out how to make that better, because uh, I foolishly thought I'd save time by using MySQL Command Center uh, or the Management Center, because we have it set up for this particular database. Uh, and I regret everything about it because it's been oh, way harder than it should have been. That sucks. <laughs> It's That's more because tools, it expects I, yeah. you to have full root admin access and in RDS ah. land, you don't get that. So I'm running into all these weird, like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I don't have that permission to use the built-in tool. So if I just gone to the command line like I should have done and just done MySQL dump and MySQL uh, restore, I would have already been done with this problem. So that's what I'm doing after the podcast. <laughs> the way I should have done it to begin with because I've wasted at least 65 minutes now trying to do it the simple way. That was going to be a shortcut for me because I was trying to be lazy. It didn't work out. Hey, man. Yeah. You, dude, access in the cloud is not the same. That's yeah, that's true. It's a shame that they're treating that access model the same way. Mm. It is. Well, it's Oracle. They don't care about I'm, anybody but themselves. Yeah, <laughs> fair point. <laughs> I'm curious how the uh, security center do it. AI is gonna gonna work. And in the back in the back of my head, I'm also going. So when the world is taken over by AI, it's just gonna you know mute those alerts in the security ops. So, I mean, I didn't center. see a demo of this. I didn't walk by that particular part of the booth. Uh, I was in the security AI booth, but not that part of it. Um, the What I've seen in other demos, and I don't know for sure on this particular one, but typically there, it's you use the AI to ask questions of like something you see, like you know, something comes up and says like, hey, uh, you know, this IP address tried to do something weird. And so then you would ask it, you know, how many other systems has this AI IP talked to? And then it'll answer that question for you. So that's the kind of things it hmm. does that I've seen so far. 
I doubt it's much more advanced than that right now, just knowing where, where we're at with these language models. Um, but that doesn't mean I won't do more in the future. Just right now, I think it's probably more question to answer or like, hey, I see this pattern. Where else do I see that file on a server or those sort of questions that you can answer? I think the real big difference between like AI and natural language processing where you just ask questions is, is really the, the ability between to maintain context between prompts, right? And so, you know, yeah, show me, show me all computers that were affected by this IP and then show me every transaction that was over this many megabytes or whatever, right? You know, and that it can keep that conversation going and that's really the power in it. And so it's like, if you watch like a security analyst do like, like some mega Splunk queries, like it's really making that a lot simpler. So, and, you know, not having to know a direct DSL or specific product syntax also helps quite a bit. And then when they get to images, they just go enhance. 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 Yeah. All right, moving on to the analytics side of the place, which uh, was pretty quiet for a, co- a cloud conference that with analytics in general. Uh, but they did announce the BigQuery Studio, a single interface for data engineering, analytics, and predictive anal- analysis, which will increase efficiency for data teams. Plus, it integrates into the Vertex AI foundation models because we still have to shove AI into it. Mm-hmm. And then they also announced for analytics AlloyDB AI, which offers an integrated set of capabilities for easily building Gen AI apps, including high-performance vector queries that are up to 10x faster than standard Postgres. Uh, so again, more SQL queries from AI. I have to admit, I didn't catch any of this. Um, well, at the conference, so I have no idea what any yeah, of this is. I didn't either. We were all too busy. <laughs> AI, AI. <laughs> What's this vendor do? Oh, AI, perfect. Uh, yeah, analytics. Everyone, no one was talking analytics. It, yeah. Analytics is dead. Long live by AI. Uh, and then uh, the last set of announcements was all around security space, of course, because they did by Mandiant uh, last year. Uh, so first up is Mandiant Hunt for Chronicle, which allows you to integrate the latest insights into attacker behavior from Mandiant's frontline experts with Chronicle security operations. This does happen to be the booth that uh, I stopped at in the convention center, and I made Ryan stop there as well, only because mm-hmm. it had a pretty graphic. And I'm an executive, and I love pretty graphics. <laughs> I showed you all the different vulnerabilities that existed in the flow, uh, and we were ch- chatting with the people who did no interest in actually demoing it to us. Uh, so we just kind of stared at it awkwardly for about three minutes and then we said we're gonna go and then we walked away we made some small talk yeah. yeah it did the pretty picture did stop justin like dead in his tracks though so like if you're ever wondering whether you need to put that image in their slide deck yeah it works yeah. it's a cool it's a cool like, it's a cool it visual really cool. It, it was a really cool, cool visual, visual. <laughs> i mean like it's not like you know just a chart it was, yeah. it was an interactive no, chart. it was a live it was a yeah a live query and a visual a breakdown of all of like the attack vectors of tra- this traffic stream it was really neat to see I did. I did definitely feel like my executive bobblehead at that moment. Ooh, my executive side just came out and was like, "Ooh, pretty," uh-huh. <laughs> which is not what not what you need in this great tool. But it's still good. It was. I really appreciate it. Uh, the other things uh, in the fire in this particular space, of course, agent agentless vulnerability scanning. Uh, this is posture management capability and security command center text operating system software and network vulnerabilities, uh, which is very similar to Inspector over on the AWS side of the house. Uh, Cloud Firewall Plus adds advanced threat protections and next-gen firewall capabilities we talked about earlier with Japan. And Assured Workloads now supports the Japan region for all your Japanese requirements for encryption keys and administrative access transparency. And for those of you who forget what Assured Workloads are, because it's terribly named, this is the thing that makes sure that only certain citizen types can access certain objects inside projects. This is how you do things like FedRAMP compliance, GDPR, PCI, and now apparently Japanese uh, sovereignty related. So it's good to see. Hmm. I wonder, yeah, do, I haven't played around with Assured Workloads. Do you define your own policy to, to demonstrate G, GDPR or FedRAMP No, compliance? they give you check boxes. You check the box and okay. put, the, put the projects in the folder with the boxes checked, and then those things get applied. So basically, it basically prevents Google employees from doing things with the servers that are outside of their country. Mm-hmm. And it has some other things it does, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for people is. who have that need, it's super helpful. Yeah. It's yeah. it's one of those things that yeah it's management of cloud objects is you know is a really good offering in GCP they do really have a that part sort of head and shoulders above the rest some other things where I'm just like what but you know that one I like all right so that takes us to our predictions uh, so Ryan you predicted generative AI prediction of a uh, FinOps practice and cost management AI solution, you swung and a miss on that one. I'm yeah. sad about this one, though. I Of all of the items that missed on this list, this is the one that I'm actually 
kind of the most shocked about and also the saddest that didn't come. Because considering all the other awesome AI stuff we got, why can't we get FinOps? And they've doubled down on Looker. Like I had a, I, I thought I knew exactly where this one was going to come from just because of all the work that they've done in the last year with Looker and, and productizing that and combining it with Data Studio and doing all these things. I was convinced that you just threw AI in there somehow and it would come. Nope. They did. Uh, they did announce the FinOps Hub, but they didn't talk about it on main stage, and they didn't. Yeah. They didn't really even talk about it anywhere, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but they basically they give you a um, a score or your FinOps score based on a five point scale, um, and you know. But it's basically just a it's a dashboard just so you have an AWS mm-hmm. or another thing. So it's nothing really fancy. It's nice. The score is apparently tied to like your peer benchmarks, which is kind of interesting, and a maturity model they've kind of defined. So. There are some nice things Ooh. in it, but um, it wasn't it wasn't main staged. Number one, nope. And number two, it uh, was no AI. In it, so nope. Sorry. And I I forgot about it. So just when we were talking about it, uh, it's one of those many announcements that kind of ended up in a breakout session. They didn't do a press release on because they're silly. I did play around with it today though because I was interested. How did so you find out about else. it though? Like out of curiosity, hmm? how did you find it? Um, because it was just available in in, okay. in the product for what they I only found out about it because I'm in the FinOps Foundation and and uh, someone was chatting about it. Like, oh, this tool is kind of cool. I really like yeah. this. But, you know, they had some questions with the peer benchmarking where that came from, but um, and how they determined what who your peers were, <laughs> which is a good question. That um, is a good question. Yeah, n- none of that was in the console, just the scores. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Uh, so I'm sorry about that one, but I I hope maybe that comes soon. It seems like an obvious extension of AI is yes. know, FinOps. Uh, a networking feature that only supports IPv6. Uh, I did not hear a single word of IPv6 or IPv4 anywhere at the conference or in any booths. So I think you definitely missed on this. One. If anything, the the VPC spoke where they they're transparently natting all your traffic for overlooking VP, uh, IPv4 addresses is is like I should lose a point because <laughs> that's you know like that's the opposite. So I'll wait another ten years. Yep. So Jonathan uh, had TPU V5. Uh, it was technically the V5E. We'll, we'll let him take it. Cause it's, that's only fair. Although he's not here to take the point. So yeah. Uh, and then he uh, had gen- he did not have generative AI for contact center and or retail AI, which uh, not a lot of retail type stuff. They did have some you know customer use case stories, including a Wendy's booth on the on the show floor uh, that did had no food. So it was yeah, a Wendy's, Wendy's booth drive through, no food. Ooh. Come on. Nothing. 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 And like, this is such a huge marketing opportunity. And like, literally, people were tweeting about the Wendy's booth on Twitter. And I saw people in who lived in San Francisco going, like, oh my God, if there was a Wendy's at Moscone Center right now, I would be there in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't be able to get in because the security was pretty tight. But at least, like, apparently, there's a need for Wendy's in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. If you're a franchisee, uh, you should put one there because apparently it's it's in demand. And I mean, they had it set up with like a drive through. Like, it was, it, it looked like it served food. (laughs) <laughs> it did there was no food uh, so then I have Google Bard and workspaces will be general availability I got that right and then I said it's not Bard it wasn't hard and then uh, well I mean Bard is behind doing AI like mm. every, when you read the docs it's all Bard are you sure yeah <laughs> I mean we can argue about it I didn't job. get a point so I'm just going to be pedantic and pick over everything <sighs> alright <laughs> I mean, technically, I, I guess. I mean, Google I would. <laughs> maybe I should have said DeepMind here. I've been clearer because things like I think Bard's actually being rebranded to DeepMind. Kind of what yeah. the impression I was getting is that they're they're realizing Bard's a dumb name, which it is. Yeah. Uh, and then I had the negative, which was they're not going to announce anything new, uh, which didn't they announce stuff. So that was dumb, dumb choice. Uh, Matt, you gave us four items, and we only decided to pick two because we we were all struggling to go for the two each, and so we just took the two that we felt were the least likely for you to get a point on. No, I'm just kidding. We, we, we tried to, we, we, <laughs> we let you pick up the, we, we picked yours out of your list at the very end. So you didn't get, you know, the ranking or the prioritization. And we just chose the, the two that seemed the best out of what was left. Uh, so you had, uh, at being able to access Bard by an API similar to what ChatGPT uh, is available to you in Azure, that did not come. Um, I mean, there are, in fairness, but you didn't specify it, there are lots of APIs for the things they announced with Duet AI, but not specifically a LLM via an API that's publicly available, unless it's through Vertex, which we felt, I feel, doesn't get to a point. No, I don't get a point. I, I agree with that. I, I, I know what I was going for there, and it wasn't. And then additional security tooling via CICD, which would, I thought was also an excellent choice. Um, I was also kind of sad this one didn't come either. <laughs> uh, not as much as I was sad about uh, the FinOps one, but uh, you know, this one was kind of the second big miss for me. 
Uh, and then the other two in green, because we only chose two, we, we gave you, we said if you hit either of those, uh, we, don't, we wouldn't give you any points, uh, but that we would at least give you credit. Uh, and That's fine. you didn't really hit either of these either. Announcing that they gained market share, they didn't talk about that at all. And then the other one was some sort of competitor to AWS Lattice. And I'm giving you like a really hard stretch here that I'm giving you cross-cloud connectivity as sort of like that. Uh, and some of the other things that we talked about, about the load balancers and interconnectivity. Not exactly the same thing, but I'm giving you, a, I'm going to give you a, a sort of half credit towards it. Okay, so I'll get 0.1 points then. Yeah, you're still beating which me. Which I'm okay with. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is all that matters. Uh, so that brings us to tiebreaker because Jonathan and I are tied. So, uh, and I had six announcements and Jonathan had nine. And I didn't bother to count them up, but I know it's more than nine. So Jonathan <laughs> wins uh, the Google Next uh, draft. So congratulations, Jonathan. Even though he's not here to take his, his victory lap, he can do that next week, I assume. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, yeah, any no- other thoughts about Google Cloud Next that we didn't cover or... Thing, I but. did enjoy that because not only did they do the press release right at like the the kickoff, they also like at the beginning of the the keynote, like bam, all the announcements, all on one slide, just right up front. Like and so, it was nice to know that Justin had lost that tiebreaker immediately. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> and then you were hoping you were hoping still that something would come out for you. And, and nothing I did. I really, and I was like, oh, and then there'll be more. And so, like, I had to, all the dream crushing experience of. Yeah, you you even went to the developer conference hoping someone come with the developer com, you know, developer yep. keynote, and you got nothing. You just All, yeah. although I do not regret that because the developer keynote was amazing. Uh, Forrest did a really great job, you know, singing in a conference. Like if I say those words, it sounds terrible, but I, I they pulled it off. Um, him his team, and there were some really good announcements there, and some really powerful demos that Justin knows. I got me all fired up where I was like chomping at the bit to get home so I could play around with stuff, which is you know. It's always a really good demo if you get if you're driving that kind of excitement. Yeah, and I, I'll admit I have not watched that one yet. Uh, it is on my radar to do. Uh, I, did, I had to rewatch TKs this morning, and uh, I forgot how how bad that one was. Yeah, uh, that one was <laughs> so painful. I, I was I lost momentum for watching the developer one after that, and then there's a couple a couple really good ones I want to check out. I was sharing some of them at work today. Uh, there's a Terraform HashiCorp uh, session, which apparently was quite good. Uh, there's a couple others as well that I, are definitely on my radar. I'm gonna check out uh, when I have some free time, which means I'll forget about it in a week and never look at them again. <laughs> but uh, I have a dream that I will watch them in the next few days. Yeah. So sometimes I eke out one or two. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes sometimes there's a background noise when I'm annoyed at something else. I just pop one on and listen to somebody talk about how the product's supposed to work that I'm trying to use right now <laughs> that isn't working the way they said it was gonna mm-hmm. work. That's my favorite. <laughs> Did I get this wrong? Do I just un- misunderstand what it's for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and then uh, we're moving on to Azure, uh, who had some just uh, you know meh announcements, but I felt like left, we left them out if we didn't talk about them. So first up, uh, you can now get trusted launch uh, hardening on all of your Azure VMs by default. With sec- these are security features that allow administrators to deploy virtual machines with verified and signed bootloaders, OS kernels, and boot policies. Uh, why this took so long, I don't really understand, because I'm pretty sure Google and Amazon have defaulted to this for quite a while now. Uh, that they at least do some type of uh, verification at boot that the server is the server that it said it was going to be on the hardware that it said it was going to be on. Uh, and, uh, you know, things go bad if this gets corrupted. So you definitely want to make sure this is good uh, in good shape. I don't know if Amazon does this by default. And Google only partially does it by default. Yeah, Nitro does it by default. Nitro is its own thing. Yeah, definitely Nitro. It be, yeah, also, do, uh, I remember but, Oracle had that whole pitch where they were saying that they were the only cloud provider that verified that the image that you're running is the image you said it was. It was like their whole unbreakable mm-hmm. cloud yeah, bullshit. But then Amazon came, Amazon basically said, we've had that forever and we turned it on by default. So shut up, Oracle. So <laughs> they've had it for a while. Nice. So okay. you, you got to turn it off. You, you, you can turn it off, but you have to choose to turn it off. Gotcha. Well, having just been bit by the, the hardware signature policy, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to get my hand around. Do I care about my VM having signed representation of its hardware set. I remember when this bit was a big thing was when Sony had those DVDs or Blu-rays that had a cracked bootloader on them and they would infect mm-hmm. your machine and then you could never get rid of the virus until you like reformatted and wiped the BIOS out. So like mm-hmm. th- there are some really horrendous attacks that the TPM is there to protect. And they really yeah. came to desktops and laptops first. Mac was the first adopter really of the TPM standard. Um, and then like Windows 11 actually requires mm-hmm. you to have TPM enabled hardware 
where you can't upgrade to Windows 11. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, for that same reason. So it, it, I don't know what the situation on the Linux side of the world is. I assume there's some type of TPM guarantees that can be enforced, uh, probably optionally, unlike Windows 11 or, or Mac that requires it. Because Linux people like you have uh, knobs and things to pull. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of prevalent everywhere at this point. And it is a security thing you should do. But is it a big risk profile? Right now, no, but you know, next week there could be a zero day that's installing a bootloader, and now you really want this to be on. Yeah, I mean, maybe I misunderstand like the where this gets, but a lot of it seems very hardware based. So, like the, the when Macs do you do it, it makes sense. You know, you don't want someone plugging in like a, a boot device in and and taking over, getting access to the thing, that kind of thing. But the in a VM land, it's it does seem a little like suspect, and just because it burned me recently, you know, because of a an uninstall basically corrupted the signature and rendered the VM unusable and sort of like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's not really a windows failing as much as that's a, a, uh, uninstaller doing a bad, you know, being a shitty product. To be honest. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's definitely not a windows thing. It's, I'm just trying to figure out if the, the value of having that cryptographic server signature be verified at boot time is really worth it. Yeah. But that's only a small part of this announcement too. Right. There's, there's a couple. Yeah. Well, just don't ever install that software again. You'll never have the problem again. That That is a given. <laughs> uh, and then our last Azure story is uh, Azure Container App Jobs uh, now support uh, the ability to... Uh, something that was announced at Build is now generally available. This is the ability to support three trigger types, manual, scheduled, and event-driven container app jobs. Uh, manual jobs are triggered by a user or an external system, such as another container app. And common scenarios for jobs include running a one-time containerized data migration job, for example running a scheduled recurring containerized batch job, such as a nightly inventory processing job, running a containerized job in response to an event, uh, like an S3, uh, well, it's Azure, so it's going to be a blob <laughs> object, uh, or running a CICD build process such as Azure Pipeline Agents and GitHub Action Runners. Uh, and in addition to that, you also have the ability to now define those container apps with user-defined routes, net gateways, and smaller required subnet sizes, so you can run more of them and run out your IP space, which is great. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, if you're into container app jobs <laughs> and using these to do kind of your scheduled tasks, uh, this is nice. I actually like this yeah. feature. Yeah, no, I, these are these, yeah, no. these little uh, enablements really allow you to couple services together to achieve you know great things. And you know, it's the thing I was excited to play with is nothing more than that, right? It's, it's an integration that you know you get to define workflows. Yeah, and well, this is why like Knative and, and serverless, right? Is mm-hmm. You know, hey, this thing that would have been a scheduled job that I would run as a Windows process, you know, in the scheduled tasks, I now just run as have a server running all day for yeah. that fifteen minute thing. Yep. Exactly. Now I just spin up my right. uh, Lambda function, my serverless mm-hmm. function, my Knative function, my now my Azure Container app job, uh, run my migration or whatever I'm doing, and I'm done. I don't pay for anymore. This is a great cloud native methodology and pattern. So I I like these ones as well. Well, that's it. I'm tired. It's been a long week. <laughs> Yes, it has. GCP uh, took it out of me. And, you know, the uh, unfortunate part about moving to Vegas is not that it moved to Vegas. I mean, other than Vegas has its own, we talked about it, reinvent, like how much we hate Vegas sometimes. Uh, But uh, he said it's in April. (laughs) So it's not even a full year away. It's like, oh, it's only in like six months. (laughs) It felt a lot like tomorrow when they announced it. I have to admit, I'm like, ah, okay. I mean, I I feel bad for us, but I also feel really bad for all the product people at Google because it took them two and a half years to announce all this stuff from the last reinvent or last uh, Google Next to this one. So now they only have six months to announce a lot more stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but it was probably only half of their AI portfolio. So they probably got it lined up. Yeah. There was someone made a comment on Twitter. Maybe it was Corey Quinn. He was saying um, he felt like all the AI stuff that they're announcing is like stuff they came up with in response to open AI. And so he kind of laughs at them when they keep saying, you know, we invented this. Uh, and I, while I sort of, I don't disagree with him. I think they're just applications of the models, you know, and how you're using the models. And those probably did come out shortly after chat GPT came on the scene. But I do feel like the technology and the stuff that underpins a lot of their AI is pretty strong. Yeah. Well, and it's deeply integrated, right? You can yeah. build an app on top of ChatGPT, and you can use the APIs to to, to query data and, and handle the prompts. But what what Google is doing is is really just embedding it alongside the rest of the services, so that it's no longer like they're they're marketing as a separate thing right now because it's, it's different. But it's just BigQuery. It's just what BigQuery is going to be. You're going to ask your query in a different way, and it's going to 
like it's going to change the way we sort of work with these products. And so for me, that's the big difference. And I'm going to get a lot more value out of doing it this way versus having to build out, you know, a whole set of integrations to work with ChatGPT or, you know, try to try to like cross it in there. So it's, I like it. We'll see. There's going to be a need for both. There will be. All right. We'll see you next week here at the cloud. We'll be at least uh, recovered from Google next till the next time. Till tomorrow. Yep. In Vegas. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye, all. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.